Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good to see you and talk to you again. Um, we, we've had a bit of a break for the last couple of weeks. I celebrated a big birthday and left the country for a couple of weeks to try and get over the shock. And I was also doing exams before I went away. So that kind of took me out of circulation. You've been in North America um, for the last number of weeks. So that took you out of circulation. So uh, the one thing that I would like to thank, as I say, and thank all of our listeners who contact us wondering what was happening to podcast, why they hadn't heard it in a couple of weeks. Personally, I was extremely flattered by all of that. And uh, it's good to see that we are making, you know, some positive impact on people. So uh, great, you know. <laughs> makes yeah, thanks, Jim. No, that's great. Yes, I have been away. I've been away for nearly six weeks. It's been fascinating, as always, to be in North America. I spent most of the time in Canada. There, the, the one economic observation I would make about my experiences there is that help wanted signs are everywhere. The red hot labor market in North America really is, as we read about, I experienced it firsthand in every single rest and I mean every single restaurant and bar and hotel that I went into was short staffed. It was sometimes very hard to get restaurant bookings because half the restaurant would be closed off. And you'd ask about things like why is it so hard to get a reservation? Why are your men menus so limited? All those sorts of questions of these um, hospitality establishments. And the answer was the same every single time, which is that they can't get the staff. I stayed in a I stayed up a mountain in Western Canada, in British Columbia. And the owner of the, the whole mountain is, is an operator of resorts across North America and Europe. And they sent a, a memo out apologizing for the difficulties that people have with all these staff shortages. And they announced that they were raising their minimum wages for that particular resort across all establishments by 
um, for, the, for the next tourist season. So this story about labor market tightness in, in North America, uh, health wanted signs everywhere and wages going up fast, particularly at the lower end, which in some respects is a good thing, of course, um, is, is absolutely true. And I witnessed it on the ground. So that's one small data point that I would offer from, from my trip. I, I have to say, Chris, it resonates strongly with what I'm hearing and seeing here in Ireland as well. Uh, last night, I was at the annual dinner of the Society of the Irish Motor Industry. Uh, it's the first one they've had since February 2020. So it's great to be back out there again. Uh, but numerous people in the industry I spoke to were talking about serious, serious problems with staff shortages and effectively it's becoming really difficult to run many businesses because of that and of course in the hospitality sector it's a huge huge problem at the moment i I guess that's something we can come back to a little bit later on in the context of the whole inflationary environment while i was away i got a tweet directed at me why it wasn't directed at you i have no idea but by somebody who doesn't identify himself with the proper name he said what is the strange attempt by a supposed clearly radicalized journalist to attempt to smear people in the UK with Putin's war? No wonder you're losing the broad range of listeners you have on your podcast. I didn't realize we actually were losing listeners. And uh, I came back and I checked our figures. And in fact, all the figures continue to go in an upward direction. So I don't know where this person got that from. But anyway, that reaction uh, directed at you but tweeted to me for some reason, was in response to a post you put up saying that Putin's friends in Little England and the Republican Party in Washington, in France, in Germany, in China, all need to be held to account for Putin's war. So what were you getting at there? Well, I think it's it's fairly clear when I talk about some of those other countries. Uh, China, for instance, has not condemned anything to do with Russia. In fact, the the Economist this week has a fascinating article about a documentary that is circulating in China, a 101-minute feature-length film which talks about Russian history. And it's an official Chinese government film. It's showing across government offices, universities, and local government offices throughout China. And it's a piece of pure propaganda that is curious in a number of respects. First, It laments the demise of Marxism in Russia and thinks that Stalin has been very hard done by. And it doesn't like, for example, Khrushchev's uh, denunciation, famous denunciation of Stalin, and thinks that Gorbachev was an evil man for allowing the Soviet Union to collapse. And it really lamented the collapse of the old Soviet Union, of course, was full of praise for Putin for the restoration um, for his project to restore the old Soviet Union. And as The Economist said, it was, it was rather odd because the last thing that this lot in, in Russia are, in the Kremlin, are Marxists. They're kleptocrats. They are totalitarian dictators. They are far from anything that Marx ever wrote. So it's, so it's all very curious. But the point being, of course, that China is trying to be a big friend to, to Russia In America, you have, and I'm afraid I did watch it once, but only once, every night on Fox News, you have a chap called Tucker Carlson, who I'm not sure is running to be Trump's heir or or whatever he's trying to do. But this Murdoch paid person runs a nightly show in which he uh, regularly praises things Russian and Putin and has a go at anything that the West in general and America in particular are doing. And there are lots of people within the Republican Party who share similar sentiments. Uh, there is a view in in 
the the Republican Party in the states taking its cue from Trump's last presidency that far from supporting NATO, America should pull out of NATO. And, and that would make you very fearful for the future if and when, or perhaps I should say when, Donald Trump resumes his presidency. And there are many, many Republicans in, in the United States, not all of them, who are uh, very supportive of Putin and very anti what the Americans are doing. The, the Little, England, Little Englander comment was directed at that, that number of people in the United Kingdom who share similar sentiments. They're, they are, I don't think they're as numerous as they are in, in the United States, but there's certainly plenty of them. They would have supported Orban's recent re-election, for example. Um, I, I think uh, Farage uh, congratulated, um, if I'm right, Orban on his, his victory. And of course, Orban is a big, big friend of Putin, got re-elected on that kind of a platform. And so there are, there are plenty of people. The Little Englander thing um, refers, I guess, to, to my diehard Remain instincts, because I do think that an awful lot of people, not all voters for Brexit, but an awful lot of them are nationalists, are nativists, and I make no apology for criticising them for being that. And I guess that tweeter was responding to that. They, they object to that. And it's, it's, it's interesting that the Brexiteers, as I call them, are fighting back very loudly and very strongly. They're coming out with their fists up, labelling people like me as being radical, diehard Remainers and trying to smear and disparage us, um, simply for saying that everything that we said about Brexit is coming true. It's turning into, into a disaster. Putin financed Brexit. There is plenty of evidence to suggest that Russian money and Russian interference in, the, in that process was real. Um, he certainly wanted Brexit to happen. And I think that you only need to know that um, to realise just what Brexit has become. It's a, it's a disaster. It's an incremental disaster. As each year goes by, the British economy, the British way of life actually is diminished. Just look at the state of the Dover port today. And, you, and of course, the Brexiteers will say it's got nothing to do with Brexit. But of course, it does. Um, and there are just so many things that we've talked about on this podcast before, and we'll talk about again, that points to Brexit being the disaster that us diehard radical Remainers always thought it was going to be, and that the English nationalist nativist project is backfiring big time. Uh, in Ireland, Jim, you've got your own Putin apologists, and some of them sit in the European Parliament, and there's been some spectacular headlines this week about them failing to applaud Zelensky, um, the ones that sit in the Doyle as well. And that speaks to a particular phenomena that I think is present in a lot of countries to a greater or lesser extent. It's certainly present in the United States. It's present to a bit, thankfully, to a limited extent in Ireland. And it's present elsewhere in France, Germany, and of course, the UK, which is the, the weird coming together of the extreme left and the extreme right in their support, fondness, admiration, sympathy for all things Putin. And they will, of course, condemn the war in Russia, uh, the war in Ukraine, apologies, and all that sort of thing with weasel words. And then they will come out and say, well, it's all America's fault. It's all Ukraine's fault, etc., etc." And both the extreme left and the extreme right do this. And it's a very peculiar political phenomenon, socio-political phenomenon. Maybe it's a psychological condition. I'm not sure. But my diagnosis, diagnosis of it 
is that what unites the extreme right and the extreme left to the, end, to the point where they end up looking exactly like each other is their absolute hatred of all things American. And given you know, how intertwined our societies, economies are with things American, I think it amounts, when people stand up and start doing the things and saying the things that they are doing, to, to actually a psychological phenomenon of self-loathing. But that, that's just my, me and my own psychobabble. But it is interesting that you do have people who tacitly or explicitly, um, even in Ireland, and thankfully in a minority, that do express some words of support for what's going on. And to go back, this is a very long-winded answer to your question, Jim, to what I um, posted before, is that I do think that this is time for everybody to take a stand against this kind of thing. All decent people who normally don't get involved in politics, who don't really respond to these sorts of things, or even terribly interested in these things. It's time to be interested. It's time to take a stand. And it certainly is no time to be sitting on the fence. Um, we need to support our ideals. We need to, to voice them loudly. And we need to make sacrifices to defend them. And I think that Germany in particular is failing in this regard uh, in its refusal to shut off supplies of Russian gas because since the war started, Jim, we in the West have given about $35 billion to Russia for gas so far imported uh, since the start of the war. And we've given about a billion to Ukraine. And um, how anybody can think that is ethical, that is right. And I do think that the, the time has come to take the pain of shutting off Russian gas exports and deal with it and just get on with it because, because it is simply wrong. And so that's a particular example of the sort of things that we should be doing, um, or perhaps the number one thing that we should be doing, because I think all the other sanctions um, that are being announced as we speak uh, are performative. They're not going to make a difference. And the thing that I would point to that suggests that sanctions aren't working is that the ruble is now back to where it was before the war started. And the, the ruble is perhaps the biggest, best barometer of how well sanctions are working and the fact that the ruble has recovered all of its losses um, is, is very, very interesting and very instructive. When the ruble was crashing at the start of the war, Biden described it as the rubble. And now this week, because it has recovered, Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, had to tell Congress not to read too much into it. Um, but of course, we should read a lot into it. Um, so so that's that's my take on on. on the, my little Englander comment. It's it just not to disparage all English people or indeed anybody that voted for Brexit, but to disparage those who um, have gone down this nationalist nativist route because nationalism and nativism always ends up, always historically, with where we are in Ukraine. Somebody somewhere starts fighting and killing. And that's, what, that's why nationalism, in my view, is a poison wherever and whenever it occurs, and it is something that we all need to stand against. That's not about patriotism. That's not about love of your country. All those things are wholly legitimate, admirable qualities. But the way nationalism and nativism has been practiced historically always leads to trouble, as we are seeing now. I have to say I agree with you 100% because I, you know, I've, I've said on this podcast before that I believed Trump and Boris Johnson have been hugely responsible for giving um, fuel to what Putin is doing at the moment because uh, Trump succeeded in, number one, dividing and weakening America, and number two, um, really damaging the relationship between the United States and Europe. And Boris, of course, by 
pushing ahead with the nonsense of Brexit, uh, obviously weaken the European Union and, and create a division. I, ironically, it does strike me that actually Putin's um, antics over the last couple of months have actually strengthened and united the European Union to some extent. That's notwithstanding, you know, Orban and Hungary and a few people like that. But the European Union, I think, actually um, is somewhat more united now than it has been for some time. Uh, time will tell how that's going to feed out. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, I, when I was away, I was reading um, a biography, the first volume of biography of JFK, that was uh, published a couple of years ago by a, a professor in Harvard. It, it was the period up to when JFK became president. And a lot of it was focused on the run up to the Second World War. And, you know, as I read it and as I read the antics of Hitler, um, it has so many resonances with what Putin has been doing and what he continues to do. And uh, yesterday I was doing a webinar and uh, in answer to a question about the whole Ukraine situation, um, I was arguing that uh, Europe does need to put an embargo on energy imports from Russia because they are funding the war. And um, I compared Putin to Hitler. Um, someone on the webinar described my comment as absolute nonsense, um, but I would defend it to the end of the day. I mean, I do believe um, what Putin is doing at the moment is just so reminiscent of what Hitler did. So it's it's kind of scary stuff out there at the moment. There's no doubt about that. Um, I, I Note with interest that uh, yesterday, Stan McCarthy, uh, the former chief executive of the Kerry Group, um, who was now chairman of Ryanair, uh, was speaking at an event in New York. And he was talking about the impact that the Ukraine war is going to have on globalization and that it will fundamentally redefine globalization as we know it um, in the sense that um, companies and countries will now have to look much more closely at the geopolitical risks involved in operating in certain parts of the world. And, um, you know, you look at, for example, the aircraft leasing industry, what has happened, the planes that are in Russia. Um, you, you sort of look at what's going on in Asia and China, particularly at the moment. And, and you'd have to say Stan McCarthy talks a lot of sense by saying that what's happening at the moment is really going to change the process of globalization that has been so instrumental in basically shaping and driving the world over the last 30 years at least. I can't tell you how many articles I've read over the last few weeks that start with John Maynard Keynes talking about the end of the first period of globalization in 1914 at the start of the First World War. The way in which we measure these things, trade flows, openness of economies, the globalization era that began with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the entry of China into the World Trade Organization had only just recently gotten back to the levels of globalization that we saw in 1914. And Keynes then talked about the way in which a person could sit in their bed on the telephone, anachronistically perhaps, and order any of the goods of the world and have them delivered to their doorstep within a matter of days and talked about a world that looked very much like ours, obviously substituting the telephone for the internet. And that all came to a shuddering halt with the start of the First World War and didn't get back to anything like um, its pre-1914 state 
until quite recently. And people are saying, well, this is 1914 all over again. Globalization is going into reverse. And you can see exactly why people like that, why, why that guy from Kerry and Ryanair uh, would say things like that. The number of articles that have called for or described or forecast the end of globalization. And there's, there's one a day. And very um, leading commentators like Martin Wolf of the FT has written that. Well, the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg has written the same article in, in a slightly different way, all saying that globalization is coming to an end. And it's a very obvious call to make um, you, because of what's happening. Uh, you can see the world splitting up into three big trading blocks. There's going to be the Americas, there's going to be the European Union, and there's going to be a China-dominated Asia. I'd be very careful about saying that that's an absolute certainty, the way things are going. We have talked many times about the perils of forecasting anything, particularly things economic, but things political, I think, are even more difficult to forecast. That's a very plausible scenario, but I think you've got to remember just at the start of the war, all of these experts were saying that Ukraine, that Kiev would fall within three or four days, and every single expert has got the war completely wrong. And it's a reminder that we need to be humble about the way the world is going to look. But I would agree with you, subject to that humility, that it doesn't look great for globalization, that uh, things are going to be brought back into these regional trading blocks. People are going to be looking in particular at their production, their factories that they have, the sourcing of goods in China, um, in the way in which uh, things... It, Russian have been shut down because of sanctions. Should sanctions against China ever be needed? Or indeed, could China could use its own leverage to um, punish companies that it doesn't like. So I think that these extended supply chains, which have contributed to the inflation problem that we've had because of the supply chain disruption, which was originally the pandemic rather than the war, is, I think we're going to be moving to a world where companies try to build in more resilience to their production systems, rather than just always cost-cutting and going for just-in-time production systems. So I think all risk-based assessments that any company, that any individual actually thinking about their lives going forward is going to have to be thinking about contingencies rather than the best possible case. And that's a very different operating environment for, for businesses and for us as individuals. Yesterday, uh, Eurostat published energy statistics for the European Union. Um, and I think they're really interesting in the context of the whole energy embargo issue in relation to Russia. But the energy mix of the European Union, 35% of energy consumed is oil and petroleum, 24% is natural gas, 17% renewables, 13% nuclear, and 11% solid fossil fuels. Okay, so that's the energy consumption in the European Union. However, 58% um, of the energy consumed is actually imported and 24% of the total energy needs um, are imported from Russia and 46% of the natural gas imported comes from Russia. So you, you can see there um, in terms of the energy balance, the EU is in a very, very vulnerable place at the moment. Huge reliance on Russia. The, the EU has argued that by the end of this year, that two-thirds of its dependence on Russian imports um, could be eradicated through li liquefied natural gas and through other gas pipelines. Um, but you can see there just very clearly 
that if there is an embargo on Russian energy, it is going to have a huge impact on the European economy. And uh, there, there is this whole balance at the moment between the moral argument around such an embargo and the economic pain that such an embargo would impose on Europe. I have to say, personally, I think the moral argument should win out here. Um, I think there should be an embargo on energy imports from Russia, ASAP. There shouldn't be an argument. There shouldn't be a debate. It's completely and utterly ridiculous. The economic hit from cutting off Russian oil and gas will be big. Arguably, uh, given the estimates that people are making, and people are trying to make estimates, they can only be probabilistic ones, they can only be a range rather than an actual point estimate. But the numbers that I've seen in terms of the hit to things like GDP are um, of the order of the magnitude that the pandemic caused, actually. Uh, Whether or not they will be as short or long-lived as the pandemic economic consequences remains to be seen. But I think a central estimate for the hit to Germany, which is at the heart of this argument, because they are the ones most dependent in the EU. All of the EU is, of course, dependent to some extent, but Germany is at the apex of this. The a central estimate around which you have to have wide error bands is that they would take a hit of 3% of GDP if they cut off Russian oil and gas, which is significant. It would raise unemployment. Um, it would hurt people. But Germany ought to be able to manage that. Germany can manage that. It, it, isn't, um, it isn't an economic debate, if you ask me. It is something that we should do and that we should do, we should do now. Um, why, why they are even thinking that it is a, a, reason, a reasonable argument to set off the economics of this versus the ethics is, is beyond me. And I think that this is a big failure of Germany. But Germany's energy policy has been failing for years now. And it's all down, really, to Angela Merkel who um, responded to the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan with a panicked shutdown of Germany's nuclear program. So that, 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 that was a disastrous decision. France, by contrast, has expanded its nuclear problem, so it's far less exposed to Russia. And Germany has been told by everybody interested in energy policy for years that its dependence on Russia was strategically stupid. The thing that I find most interesting, not many people have drawn this comparison It's one that I've seen straight away, and so it might just be me, but I have actually seen Paul Krugman in the New York Times touch upon this as well, is that Germany was very quick to castigate countries like Greece and Ireland for their fiscal profligacy during the financial crisis and was very quick morally and ethically to condemn them for their fiscal stupidity and and then to punish them and to inflict economic pain on countries like Greece and Ireland. Now, Germany has been as stupid, possibly more stupid and more strategically inept as the Greeks and the Irish and and the Spanish and the Italians during the financial crisis with its own energy policy. And now it's, it's not taking a moral high horse. It's saying, oh dear, we can't take the economic hit of our previous policy mistakes. And there is a read across here. You have to be able to say, you inflicted economic, moral and ethical pain on these countries for bad policies. Now, Mr. Germany, it's your turn. And I think I think that's an important point that, that um, I'm glad to see Paul Krugman has made. I haven't seen anybody else make that point. But Germany, I don't think, has a leg to stand on when it comes to this issue. The thing about the energy mix in the European Union that uh, surprised me a little bit, that was just 17% of energy consumption from renewables 
And uh, I, I just think one of the direct effects of what's going on at the moment is that, you know, we are all going to have to be forced, dragging and screaming to really ramp up the whole renewable energy issue. And um, this brings us, of course, to the whole question of NIMBYism. Um, I know um, in a, in a, I'm getting a little bit parochial about this now. Um, there is a journalist down with the Waterford News and Star, Dermot Keyes, uh, good guy, writes good stuff uh, for a local newspaper. Uh, he covered a meeting in the parish hall in my little tiny village in Waterford the other night. And um, apparently, as he reported, widespread opposition to the construction of a wind farm or sorry a solar farm I beg your pardon um in, in the parish I have no idea I don't know anything about it actually I didn't even know these plans were afoot so I can't possibly comment on whether it's a good idea a bad idea and I'm, I'm not doing that but, I, but what, what I am saying is that we really are going to have to make some sacrifices in order to reduce the dependency we have on imported energy and the, the Russian situation at the moment has obviously highlighted that dramatic fashion. If we're not prepared to make sacrifices, we will lose this war. Um, Michael Khodorkovsky, who is a Russian oligarch that fell out with Putin and was jailed by him for 10 years, wrote this week, I think in the Financial Times, that the West is at war with Russia now. We just don't realise it yet. And I have to say, with great humility, without pretending to be an expert in this area, I tend to nod in agreement when I hear him saying things like that. And in times of crisis, if not times of actual war, you have to make sacrifices. And this idea that we can't build onshore wind farms or put solar uh, farms into fields is um, is nuts. The UK's at it as well, Jim. They announced a new energy strategy this week. And because uh, too many conservative backbenchers are getting lobbied by their constituents about the awfulness of wind farms because they are unsightly and they're noisy, apparently. Um, they have rode back on a big expansion of wind energy uh, in, in terms of it being onshore in the UK, which is just as ridiculous as the example that you just cited from, from Ireland. It's not parochial at all, Jim. It's, it's happening everywhere. And until people wake up, to this, um, I, I think more generally, unless we are prepared to say we will run the risk of power cuts, we will build things in fields and on mountaintops that we previously weren't going to, we will make sacrifices of both an economic and political nature. I think Putin will look at us and say, yep, my original diagnosis of you and your society and your civilization, that you are decadent. Um, I think that that is you know, I totally deplore everything that Putin has done. But every great lie comes wrapped in a kernel of truth. And the kernel of truth that I think that Putin will cling on to is that the West will not survive this conflict because it is decadent. And if we don't make sacrifices, that for me is one key definition, classical definition, if you like, of decadence. But let's move away from the politics, Jim, and talk a little bit about the economic issue of the moment, which is inflation. We've talked about energy price inflation, but I know that you want to talk a little bit about food price inflation. Indeed, so do I. Yeah, I. Uh, yesterday, the Central Statistics Office here published the March inflation numbers for Ireland, 6.7% year on year, the highest since November 2000, um, an increase of 1.9% in the month, 
which is the largest uh, monthly increase since 2008. Um, with, within that 6.7% inflation number, uh, there's a lot of obvious stuff there. Private rents are up 9.2%, uh, electricity 22.4%, natural gas 29.4%, home heating oil, which increased by over 50% in the month, is up 126.6% year on year, diesel up 46%. So you can see where the energy thing is feeding in very, very significantly. But uh, I think one of the interesting facets of inflation that I've been tracking closely because I am a board member of Love Irish Food, I have a particular interest in the whole agri-food industry, but um, annual food inflation now running at 3% significantly lower than overall inflation in the economy. But that's the largest increase in um, food inflation since 2008. Okay, so you can see there's something happening there. And, and there's much more going to happen. Jim, there's much more, I... yeah. Today, Chris, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization published its latest monthly food global food price inflation index and it shows that a new record high has been achieved for the third successive month, 34% year on year. And if you extrapolate this forward, um, as you were attempting to do there, and I interrupted you, but if you extrapolate this forward, you'd have to think that these upside pressures are just going to intensify because wheat prices are, are have risen very, very strongly. And there's a sort of a notion that, okay, uh, if the war ends over the next couple of months, that things will settle down again. But the, the point, of course, is that uh, the, 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 the wheat that will be consumed next winter um, around the world um, should be planted at this stage. And of course, with the war going on, um, you know, pl planting crops, uh, apparently, um, has been seriously undermined and no surprises there. You look at the impact on of the war on potash, for example, which is a key ingredient for fertilizer for growing grass and growing crops. Um, it, it's going to get scarce. Its prices increase dramatically. So the cost of food production is rising. So you, you'd have to think that we're going to see a significant hike in food price inflation over the coming months. And I think the, the energy thing is one thing, okay? Um, you know, obviously, we're all uncomfortable and annoyed, whatever word you want to use, with the price of petrol and diesel every time we fill our um, internal combustion engine cars. Uh, but I think when it starts to hit food prices, that's when it's really going to start eliciting a very negative response from people. That's when it's really going to start affecting people's pockets and their quality of life. Yeah, and it affects poorer people in particular because people on lower incomes spend a bigger proportion of their, their household budget on food and energy. And if there is help to be given, they're the kind of people that need the help. People like you and I don't need it, Jim, dare I say. Uh, but it's not just poorer people in our own jurisdictions. Uh, it, it's places like North Africa and the poorer countries around the world like that. Um, uh, Egypt gets 80% of its wheat from Ukraine and Russia. And North Africa generally is exposed in particular to these, to these high prices. And remember, um, in the early 2010s, we had something called the Arab Spring, which was caused in no small part by high food prices. So there will be political consequences 
And we've already seen political trouble in places like Sri Lanka and Peru as a result of high food prices. When you start digging into the details of why we are getting these high prices and why they're going to go up a lot more, um, it's things like the, the last harvest from Ukraine, which was last autumn, of course, when they cut a lot of their, uh, their grains and they store them. In, in hoppers, and you know more about this as a farmer than, than I do. But at the moment, 15 million tons of corn are stuck in Ukraine silos. They can't get them out because normally they ship them to the Black, they truck them and put them on trains to the Black Sea and then ship them out to the various countries that take this corn. And of course, they can't get to the Black Sea at the moment because of what is happening with regards to the Russian war. Some of it is getting out. And it's the way in which these things happen that, are, that, that remind you that some of this is unanticipatable and that surprising things will happen. So half a million tons, they reckon, are getting out a month at the moment from Ukraine, which sounds a lot, but it's one-tenth of their normal shipments at this time of year. So only 10% of their corn exports are getting out. Normally, it's 5 million tons a month. And the way they're getting it out is by putting it on trains heading west instead of to the Black Sea ports. And when these trains get to the border with Europe, um, containing only 10% of the grain that they should have been exporting, they have to change the wheels on the trains because they're, because they're running on old Soviet-era tracks, which are not compatible. So it's just a mess. And this is one of the reasons why the price of corn, for example, and other grains and other foodstuffs have gone up. And I think you referenced the um, United Nations FAO report as being uh, food prices in March, the month just ended, were 34% up on last year. Now, an awful lot of that is pipeline inflation. That's not the price of foodstuffs on the shop shelves going up 34%. That's yet to come. The index was 12.6% higher in March than it was in February. Yeah. So all of that increase is happening recently. Yeah, that, and so, that is absolutely extraordinary stuff. And so um, this is going to affect all of us. It's going to affect poorer people in particular and poorer countries in general with God knows what political consequences. Chris, um, I think we'll wrap it here. Um, it's great to have you back again and uh, to have another podcast recorded. Um, I think we'll have to do a bit of catching up over the next few weeks in terms of uh, recording podcasts. So, Great to talk again. We've left a lot out, um, as I think is inevitable at this time. Um, But uh, thanks to all our listeners for their lovely comments while we're away. And we're we're back and we will be recording as per usual. So thanks to you. Thanks to everybody. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.